To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. And today we'll be looking at the litigation and policy catalysts that we're watching in October 2023, and that we think will impact companies across a number of different sectors. My name is Elliot Stein. I'm a senior litigation analyst covering litigation in the financial sector, and I'll be your host for today, September 29th, 2023. If you have any questions about any of the matters that we'll be discussing on this episode, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at your convenience with questions. So we'll be discussing a handful of sectors today. First, Holly Frome will discuss litigation by Merck and other drug makers challenging Medicare drug negotiation provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA as it's known. She'll also preview a bellwether trial against Bayer concerning claims that its Roundup weed killer causes cancer. After that, Tish Walker, who covers healthcare patent litigation for us, will preview a hearing where Bausch Health will try to stop Norwich's bid for approval of its Zyfaxin copy. And she'll also discuss an upcoming trial in Exelixis's bid to keep Cabomedics generics off the market. After that, Matt Schettenhelm, our TMT litigation and policy analyst, will preview a hearing on a motion by Meta to stop the FTC from blocking the company's use of teen data. After that, Nathan Dean, our senior financials policy analyst, will talk about marijuana banking legislation. He'll also talk about regional bank long-term debt requirements and the impending government shutdown. And last but not least, I'll wrap up by talking about an upcoming Supreme Court argument in a case challenging the CFPB's constitutionality. And I'll also talk about upcoming dates in the SEC's recent lawsuit against market maker Virtu, as well as Grayscale's lawsuit against the SEC concerning a spot Bitcoin ETF. Let me also just add that our colleague Jen Ree, who covers all things antitrust for us, couldn't be on today's episode. But if you're interested in the FTC's recent lawsuit against Amazon or an October trial that's upcoming in the Justice Department's case against the JetBlue Spirit tie-up or anything else antitrust related, I highly recommend uh, that you go uh, see her research on the Bloomberg Terminal. All of our research, of course, is available on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. And just a quick word about Bloomberg Intelligence for those who are unfamiliar. We are the investment research platform on the Bloomberg Terminal, providing in-depth research on industries, companies, and markets, and delivering key data from BI analysts in their respective industries. 
All right, so with all that out of the way, let's get started with the content. Holly, uh, let's start with you. This litigation by drug makers challenging the Medicare drug negotiation provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act is really interesting. I know there's a lot of litigation around it, and you're expecting an important court ruling by October 1st. And then separately, you're also watching an upcoming trial over Byers Roundup Weed Killer. Why don't you come in and tell us more about these cases and what investors yep. should Thanks, be Thanks, Elliot. Merck, Bristol-Myers, J&J, and other drug makers and trade groups have sued the Department of Health and Human Services and Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, the agencies that administer Medicare and Medicaid, challenging a negotiation program that the drug companies say forced them to agree to a 25 to 60 percent discount on drugs selected for the program. If drug makers don't um, who are selected for the program don't agree to negotiate and don't withdraw from Medicare, they are subject to a tax, which could amount to 95% of the selected drug's gross U.S. revenue on the drug, including non-Medicare sales. So drug makers have filed several lawsuits in various districts nationwide, arguing that the drug program is unconstitutional. They've made several arguments, including that it's an unconstitutional taking, that it violates the First Amendment, that it, it imposes excessive fines, violates due process and violates separation of powers. The cases are at various stages, but one case we are watching with a possible ruling on the horizon was brought by a trade group for drug, drug makers in federal court in Ohio. The, the trade group filed a motion for a preliminary injunction seeking to enjoin implementation of the program. We said we don't think the motion will be granted because we think the case fails on the merits. The trade group has argued that the negotiation program violates their due process rights because it deprives them of a property interest without procedural protections. We think this argument fails because drug makers rely on a case where a utility was forced to provide services at a certain rate, allegedly without a fair process to determine the rate. The difference here is that drug makers can withdraw from Medicare. The utility was required by law to provide services. So that motion, the preliminary injunction motion, was argued September 15th. We think a, a ruling could come by the October 1st deadline for manufacturers to agree to negotiate. If they lose, we expect the trade group to file a request for immediate appeal. And if accepted, an appellate ruling could come in one each. Shifting gears, Bayer Monsanto faces a trial in Philadelphia State Court in, in October. The plaintiff claims, uh, in October 5th, the plaintiff claims its weed killer roundup causes cancer. Bayer faced over 100,000 cases alleging injury from its weed killer. Most of the cases settled, but there's still an estimated um, between 40 to 50,000 cases left that remain pending and unsettled. Jury selection in the Philadelphia trial begins October 5th, and this is the first case that will be tried in that jurisdiction. It's a bellwether case for Philadelphia. Several trials are scheduled into 2024. Bayer has won the last several trials in different jurisdictions, but Philadelphia is a historically plaintiff-friendly forum, so it will be interesting to see what happens there. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Elliot. Great. Thanks so much, Holly. Uh, all right, Tish, let's bring you in to talk healthcare patent litigation. Uh, you have a couple of catalysts that you're watching as well. First, Bausch Health has an October 6th hearing to stop Norwich's bid to compel approval of its Zyfaxin copy. And you're also watching the trial that starts October 23rd in Exelixis's bid to keep Cabomedics generics off the market. Um, all, all these names make, make me want to ask you why so many of these names in the, in the 
uh, drug space have X in them, but you, you don't have to answer that if you don't know. Um, but why don't you come in and tell us what these cases are about nonetheless? Thanks, Elliot. Uh, I have no idea why they have X in it. Maybe it's just to keep it interesting, or perhaps now it's to be cool, like the former Twitter. Who knows? Uh, but for the, I'm going to start with Bausch. And for those of you that follow my research, and hopefully that's everyone listening, you know that Bausch has been in a drawn-out patent litigation with Norwich, trying to block Norwich's generic Zyfaxin copy from coming to the market ahead of key patent expirations. Um, and so coming up on October 6th, there's going to be a hearing in the District Court of D.C. in Norwich's related lawsuit against the FDA, where it's seeking to compel the FDA to grant final approval to its generic Zyfaxin application. Now, this suit is separate from the patent litigation suit, which is currently on appeal. Um, so on October 6th, this court is going to hear arguments on Norwich's request for a preliminary injunction to compel the FDA to grant final approval. And it's also going to hear the FDA and Bausch's arguments for summary judgment or dismissal of this case. And then Teva, who so far remains eligible for the 180-day generic first filer exclusivity for Zyfaxin, has also sought to intervene in this case, um, though at least as of yesterday, there's no indication from the record um, that this has been granted. So in terms of the outcome, we favor Bausch and the FDA to prevail at this hearing as we think the court will either dismiss the case or possibly remand it back to the FDA, at least on the issue of Teva's first filer exclusivity. This is um, because you know, the Delaware court order that the FDA is saying blocks it from giving Norwich, Norwich's generic final approval isn't the only thing that's blocking final approval. Uh, Teva's first filer exclusivity is also blocking it, and the FDA has yet to make any forfeiture decision as to it. And then moreover, the appeal is also ongoing at the federal circuit from the patent litigation, which uh, also includes the issue of the Delaware court order. So why is this hearing important to Bausch? This is really all about timing for generic Zyfaxin to come to market. Norwich was a late generic filer. Bausch had settled three patent litigations with other generic filers for January 1st, 2028 entry date. Yet Norwich took its case all the way through trial and actually had a verdict at the trial level that could allow it to come to market earlier. Um, but there's currently a court order from the District Court of Delaware that's blocking the FDA from granting final approval until certain hepatic encephalopathy method of treatment patents expire in October 2029. Now, at the time the court issued this ruling, Norwich was seeking approval for both the hepatic encephalopathy indication and for IBSD. Then there was this split ruling in the patent case where the court found that the polymorph and IBSD patents were invalid, but the HE patents remained valid. So after the final judgment was issued, Norwich amended its generic application to remove that HE and the hepatic encephalopathy indication and is now only seeking approval of its 550 milligrams Zyfaxin copy for IBSD. Now that generic application was tentatively approved by the FDA and in the tentative approval letter, the FDA said that this district court order is barring approval or barring final approval. So Norwich then sued the FDA 
Um, but I think one of the key elements here, you know, which has been discussed frequently in this FDA case, is Teva's eligibility for first filer status still stands in the way of an FDA approval despite the court order. So, you know, I don't think this case will help clear the barriers for Norwich and its effort to get its generic copy to market, especially because the appeal of the patent case is still pending and still being briefed. And given all these litigation complexities, you know, I'm still pointing to a time somewhere between 2026, but before 2028 for Norwich entry. But in the unlikely event that Norwich does prevail in this October 6th hearing, I do think that that would expose Bausch to generic competition as early as next year in 2024. This is an extremely complicated litigation, so I encourage anyone who has any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm always happy to discuss. Um, so moving on to Exelixis and its Cabometics litigation, a trial is set to start on October 23rd and Exelixis's suit against uh, generic maker MSN to block copies of MSN's uh, generic Cabometics um, before the expiration of certain key patents. Now, this is going to be the second trial between the parties, and we favor Exelixis here to prevail on at least one of the patents that expire in 2030, but to lose on the patent expiring in 2032. And this ultimately would then block MSN's entry until at least January 2030. Now, besides MSN, there are two other generics that we know of looking to bring a Cabometics generic to market, uh, Teva and Cipla. Exelixis settled its litigation with Teva in July for a January 2031 generic entry date, and its litigation against Cipla has been stayed pending resolution of this suit against MSN. Back in January, there was a decision from the first trial that was held in May 2022, where the court found that Exelixis's 2026 expiring uh, patent was valid but that MSN did not infringe a 2030 expiring polymorph patent. So that decision in the first trial blocks any at-risk launch by MSN while this second trial plays out. And in this October trial, we think Exelixis again has the advantage to prevail on the 2030 expiring patent, but not the 2032 expiring one. A pre-trial conference is set for October 6th, and the pre-trial order is due next week, which will likely give a closer look at the specific arguments that each of the parties are going to be set forth uh, or going to be setting forth at trial. And with that, back to you, Elliot. Great. Thanks, Tish. Um, all right, Matt, let's turn to tech and bring you in. Uh, you'll be watching in October 17th hearing involving Meta, the FTC, and Meta's, Meta's use of teen data. Um, What's this case all about? Yeah, so thanks, Elliot. Meta makes tens of billions of dollars a year from its ad business, and reaching young people with, with ads is a particularly important um, piece of that market, and this case is about that. In May of this year, the Federal Trade Commission unilaterally proposed to change the terms of Meta's 2020 settlement agreement with the agency to bar Meta um, from using data from users who are 13, 14, 15, 16, or 17 years of age. And this, is, this case is about, can the FTC do that? Can it take aim at, at Meta's business model? 
um, by changing this settlement. So some background here, there's no US federal law banning the use of kids' data. Congress has worked to do that, to impose uh, strict limits on that. It hasn't been able to pass anything. The Federal Trade Commission has tried to make rules on this. It started a process to make rules about data uh, use, but it hasn't finished that rulemaking. And so this is, case is, is, is really coming in the absence of a binding law or rule. The, the FTC is effectively trying to impose that limit in another way by reopening a settlement agreement. That settlement was in 2018, 2019, the FTC investigated then Facebook about the Cambridge Analytica matter whether it engaged in unfair or deceptive practices. Meta and the FTC settled that for $5 billion, um, and a court approved that in 2020. It had some terms uh, attached to it. Now the FTC says Meta hasn't adequately complied with the terms of that 2020 settlement, and the FTC claims the statutory authority to modify that settlement and now add this term banning um, the use of advertising uh, of data to advertise to kids. Um, Meta has run to federal court, the same federal court that approved the 2020 settlement to try to stop the FTC's modification process before it can start. That's where we are now. That's what happens um, in, in two or three weeks, October 17th. This judge will say, can the FTC even start the process to modify the order in this way. So, the, so Meta has two chances to stop this. Now, before the process starts, or after the FTC modifies the order, Meta can challenge it again. Either way, I think this is going to be good news for the company. I think this judge uh, at the October 17th hearing is going to have a lot of sympathy with Meta to the idea that the FTC um, you know, really shouldn't be unilaterally changing the terms of the settlement deal. The FTC has a hyper-technical argument that it can do this. That might let it eke by past this per first hurdle. I give Meta about a 40% chance to succeed now. Even if that fails, though, Meta is going to do well challenging this after the fact. Even Democrats at the FTC raise concerns about the agency's power to do this. Ultimately, that's going to sink this effort, in my view. One way or the other, this should be uh, good news for Meta to dodge uh, this attack on, on its business model. Back to you, Elliot. Great, thanks, Matt. So, so many really interesting and novel issues around uh, uh, social media companies and you know use of data. All right, um, let's turn to financials now and bring in Nathan Dean, our senior policy analyst down in Washington. Nathan, what's going on with the anticipated government shutdown, and should we be concerned about it? Um, and I should probably just uh, mention again that we're recording this on September 29th, so by the time uh, you know you, the listener, are hearing this, we may be in the middle of the shutdown already. Um, but Nathan, you've also written about a marijuana banking bill that made some progress this past week, and also regional bank long-term debt requirements. So a lot to discuss, but why don't you come in and lay the knowledge on us? Yep, no, sounds good. So let me start with the Fed, the, the rule on the regional bank uh, debt. So this was something that was anticipated. Uh, it was actually coming out prior to the Silicon Valley Bank uh, uh, default, if you call that, uh, the signature bank issues and so forth like that. Regulators had talked about this, about requiring banks that are above $250 billion in assets to issue what is known as TLAC debt, total loss 
absorbing capacity debt as a way to safeguard against systemic risk. This is a long-term debt. Now, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank happen, and the regulators are like, well, now we actually have to really look at this proposal, uh, and we're going to push that threshold from $250 billion down to $100 billion. So this proposal impacts all 19 banks that are 100 billion in assets and up. And what it does is it requires them to issue this long-term debt. Now, the regulators decided not to go with TLAC debt. TLAC debt is something that the big banks, the Bank of America's and the JP Morgan's have to adhere to. They decided to go with the less onerous version of long-term debt. And based upon our calculations, you're looking around for these 19 banks or so around 60 to 70 billion dollars in new debt. Um, that's based off of the 2022 balance sheet data, maybe a little bit less today once you take the 2023 data into account. Uh, but essentially, these large regionals have to equate 6% of risk-weighted assets, 3.5% of average total consolidation assets, and for banks that are subject to the supplementary leverage ratio, 2.5% of the total leverage ratio. Now, this proposal is likely going to be finalized about one year from now, uh, and then it will start going into effect uh, over a three-year transition period starting on... Uh, uh, July 1st, 2025. So that's the that's the regional bank TLAC uh, debt. When it comes to marijuana banking, we had this big hearing over in the Senate Banking Committee today, I'm sorry, this week, uh, on what's known as the Safer Banking Act. If you're in this space, you know it used to be called the Safe Banking Act. The only difference between safer and safe is language regarding what's known as Section 10 over the power of law enforcement agencies. It actually has nothing to do with uh, uh, actual marijuana being used in the banking sector. But, you know, there was a lot of disagreement amongst both parties. Now, this went through committee 14 to 9. You would think it's bipartisan. It is. But uh, there were two main takeaways that I took from that hearing. One is, is that this Section 10 language is nowhere near close to final in order to get this to become law. Uh, there's a lot of Republicans out there that are concerned with this language. And if they were to try and pass this as is, I don't think you're going to get the Republican support, at least in the House, to put this into law. And the second thing is, is that uh, Senator Warnock out of Georgia, a Democrat, voted no against the bill uh, because it didn't go far enough in terms of criminal justice reform. So it did pass. Senator Schumer said that he was going to put it onto the floor as soon as possible. But he also said that he's going to tie it with criminal justice reform. And by expanding this bill, he's essentially dooming its chances in the Senate. This is the same thing that happened in 2022. If you were to have a specific vote on this bill without the criminal justice reform, he could probably pass. And I think eventually that's going to be the, the, the scenario here. But I think the, the Washington's going to have to play its games and so forth like that. They're going to have to try first uh, with criminal justice reform. That will fail. I think this passes the Senate sometime in the first four or five months of next year. Then it goes to the House. Uh, I don't think the House has any desire whatsoever to take this up at the moment. Uh, but I do think that if you know the regulatory gaps that exist for marijuana banking is a bipartisan issue, there is bipartisan support, I think towards the end of 2024, maybe even after the elections during the lame duck period, uh, this has a decent chance of passage. So uh, not the story that the marijuana companies want to sing at the moment, but uh, at least it was some good momentum uh, for uh, at least to get it out of committee. And then finally, when it comes to the government shutdown, obviously, when you're listening to this, we could be in a government shutdown. Uh, the status is, is that, you know, the Senate is trying to pass a CR at the moment. They're not going to get it done before the Saturday at midnight deadline. You'll probably see them on Sunday try and vote on this. 
The House is pursuing its own packages at the moment, none of which actually have any chance of passing into the uh, in the Senate. Uh, so yes, we are most likely going to have a shutdown. Now, what are the impacts? Well, minimal impact when it comes to uh, equity stocks. I mean, uh, we've looked at the 35-day shutdown that happened at the end of the Trump administration. You know, stocks were a little bit iffy. You know, there was some uncertainty once people realized, oh my God, this could actually last for a while. But ultimately, stocks started acting normally uh, once people realized that the uh, economic impact wasn't all that big. Uh, we've seen certain statements from like Delta Airlines who said they lost $25 million in the last shutdown. Uh, you know, I certainly don't want to say $25 million isn't a lot. I would love to have $25 million. But for a company like Delta Airlines, it's something they can work around. When it comes to contractors, you would think contractors don't get paid. Well, most large publicly traded contractors are pre-funded. These contracts are long-term in nature. So, you know, yes, their workers may, need, may be furloughed the, themselves. Uh, but at least when it comes to the revenue perspective of the large contractors, they are somewhat uh, protected there. When it comes to reporting, however, we are telling our traders to keep an eye on this because a lot of key reports that traders use, for example, like the Commodity Futures Trading Commission commodity reports that come out on Fridays, those are gonna stop. The Bureau of Labor T Statistics reports, those are gonna stop. And so as long as the shutdown continues, those reports that traders like to use uh, aren't going to be there. Uh, and then finally, you know, I would just say that in terms of the other, like, you know, just general economic impacts, just note that government workers will get their first paycheck around October 18th. It's the second paycheck that they don't. So, you know, when it comes to, if you're trying to like figure out like economic spending, consumer spending and so forth, first two weeks, government workers, all 800,000 of them should, you know, get paid. It's when you start getting into October and November and so forth, things get a little bit more scary. So with that, Elliot, um, oh, the last thing I would just say is, is that we're anticipating this shutdown to be uh, probably around one to two weeks. Uh, we don't see this lasting as much as the 35-day one for the end of the, the Trump era. So with that, Elliot, I'll pass it back to you. Great. Thanks, Nathan. Good stuff. Um, all right. I'm going to wrap up with some discussion of a few things that I'm watching in October in, in the financials litigation space. Uh, first, we have a Supreme Court argument on October 3rd in a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or the CFPB, as it's commonly known. For those who aren't familiar with this space, the CFPB is the main regulator for consumer finance. It has jurisdiction over a broad array of industries, including banks, credit bureaus, fintechs, payday lenders, and non-bank servicers. Uh, last so the, the background here is that last October, the Fifth Circuit Federal Appeals Court held that the agency's funding structure is unconstitutional because the CFPB's funding comes out of the Federal Reserve's budget rather than through the normal congressional appropriations process. The CFPB, of course, wants the Supreme Court to reverse that ruling, uh, but I don't think the agency is going to succeed. I think at least five, if not all six, of the conservative justices on the high court will largely agree with the Fifth Circuit because uh, the CFPB's current funding structure basically eliminates congressional oversight and that raises separation of power concerns. So assuming that the Supreme Court rules the way I think they will, Congress will then need to revisit how the CFPB gets funded. Um, and I think the CFPB, which is currently led by one director, 
could become a multi-member commission in that process, much like many other agencies. Um, and that'll sort of dilute the power of the agency. Um, I also think that pending rules and pending enforcement actions before the CFPB or that the CFPB has brought could be at jeopardy uh, since anything that hasn't been finalized will likely need to be ratified by the agency if and when it becomes properly funded down the road. Um, and so for companies like Navient, the student loan servicer, which has raised this issue early in its defense when it was sued by the CFPB in 2017, um, I think it could result in the case against Navient being dismissed because any ratification by the CFPB would likely be past the statute of limitations. So there's a whole lot of you know ripple effects from uh, this potential ruling in the Supreme Court, but we'll be watching on October 3rd at the oral argument to see where the court's going, um, and then we expect a ruling in the first half of 2024. Uh, a couple other cases that I'm watching in October, both of these concern the SEC. The first is a lawsuit by the SEC filed on September 12th against market maker Virtu, uh, against their broker-dealer unit, um, accusing the company of failing to protect information barriers around sensitive customer information. Uh, I expect Virtu to respond, likely with a motion to dismiss in early October, uh, and I think the company has a good chance to win dismissal of the fraud-type claims that were alleged against it, uh, because the alleged false statement that Virtue is alleged to have made don't really pertain to the sale of any specific securities as I think the relevant statute contemplates. So regardless, you know, I think Virtue's monetary risk in this case is relatively small, probably less than $25 million. But if it can win dismissal of these fraud type claims early in the litigation, I think it reduces that exposure even more, perhaps to the single digit millions. Uh, and then finally, the last case I want to talk about, um, this is uh, um, crypto company Grayscale's case against the SEC over Grayscale's bid for a spot Bitcoin ETF. You know, if, if you follow crypto on Twitter, um, you know, th this gets a lot of uh, a lot of activity on Twitter. Um, I've spoken about this case a few times, but as a refresher. Grayscale has been trying to convert its Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, known as GBTC, to an ETF, which would you know, make it a lot easier for investors, both retail and institutional, to gain exposure to Bitcoin. <clears throat> um, just by way of background, the SEC rejected Grayscale's application last year. Grayscale then sued. Just this past August, uh, August 29th, we finally got a court ruling from the DC Circuit, at least the panel of three judges there. And they vacated the SEC's rejection order, and they said that the agency had essentially acted arbitrarily because it rejected um, Grayscale's bid for a spot Bitcoin ETF after having previously approved Bitcoin futures ETFs. Um, and you know the, the the court said that you can't really distinguish between these products, um, and so you shouldn't be allowed to reject one while approving the other. Um, we're waiting to see what the SEC does next. It has an October 13th deadline to ask for end bank review by the DC Circuit. That would mean that all the non-senior judges on the court um, review the case. Um, but keep in mind that in bank review is not automatic. The court has discretion to either you know, allow it or not allow it. Um, and I think it's unlikely that the court would grant 
uh, an SEC petition for in-bank review, um, in part because you sort of had um, uh, you, you had uh, judges on that panel from different ideologies. You had one who's very libertarian. You had two who were appointed by uh, Democrats. Um, and you also had the chief judge of the court on the panel. So I think it's unlikely that the rest of the judges on that court would want to revisit their uh, ruling. Um, and then assuming no in-bank review, the SEC could alternatively ask the Supreme Court for review. But I, I think that's also unlikely. You just don't see the the type of um, you know circuit split or federal question issues that the Supreme Court usually takes up, and then assuming that there's no further court review of the August 29th D.C. Circuit panel ruling, the ball then goes back to the SEC, and they'll have to revisit Grayscale's application again. Um, and based on you know the August 29th ruling, I don't think the SEC has a lot of uh, wiggle room to try to reject Grayscale's application again. Um, but again, the key date there is the October 13th date for the SEC to file for in-bank review. Um, all right, so you know, lots of interesting things to watch in October that we've all been talking about. Um, but I think we'll probably wrap up here. Um, and so this will conclude this episode of Votes and Verdicts. As always, thank you for listening. And as a reminder, you can find all of our research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. And we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions you may have. And we also encourage you to listen to other episodes of Votes and Verdicts on whatever platform you like to get your favorite podcasts. So thanks again for listening and have a great day. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.